Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Our current series is called The Ripple Effect. Our goal is to understand how the forces that shape our lives affect us personally and then ripple out beyond us to impact our friends, our neighbors, and the world at large. I hope you enjoy. And we'll move to our first scripture, which comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some were saying, It is he. And others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And then I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew 5, 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. And truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. So we are doing a sermon series for the first six weeks of the new year called The Ripple Effect. And this is based on the visualizations of the ripples that occur in water. I worked this week. Awesome. All right. Not bad. So the idea behind this series is that we're dealing with this terminology, the ripple effect, which talks about an event that happens in one place and then ripples out and impacts circumstances and situations that were not connected to the initial event. And so the idea behind this series is that there are these forces that shape our lives And these forces, they can ripple out beyond us to impact our family, our friends, our neighbors, and the world around us. And Jesus has this amazing ability to disrupt those influences and reform us and reshape us into completely different types of people. So last week, we talked about this idea that we all have this narrative Right? Do you remember that? We talked about how we have a narrative, the story that we tell ourselves about who we are and where we came from. And this story's important, isn't it? 
and the story that you tell yourself about your life because it shapes who we are. It informs how we interact with the world and it ripples out beyond us. And the goal of last week was to talk about how do you change that narrative when the narrative is no longer working for you. And this week, we're going to be talking about some of the underlying influences that actually create that narrative and how those particular influences can ripple out to create a cycle of both positive and negative behaviors. And to begin this, I'd actually like to tell you a story this morning. This is a story from my own life. The story takes place back when I was at Princeton Seminary. And I've told you all in the past how when I was there, I was very fortunate that I got a really good job at a local Methodist church. I was a youth director there, and I came into a very strong youth program. And right before I was about to start, they asked me to come in and to spend some time talking with the youth leadership team, which was a group of kids who were from freshmen to seniors, and they helped lead the direction of the youth group. So I sat down with them, and it was at this meeting that I met a young woman. She was a senior in high school, and I learned there that her father had passed away three months earlier from lung cancer. So the story goes that he had been a smoker for about 25 years, and then one day, out of the blue, he just quit, quit smoking. And his family was super proud of him for doing this, for breaking his addiction to nicotine, and his daughter was seven years old at the time that this happened. So 10 years go by, everything seems to be going well, and then one day he's feeling kind of sick, he goes to the doctor, they do some tests, and they figure out that he has tumors in his lungs, and those tumors, they end up spreading to the rest of his body very quickly, and he dies suddenly from this cancer. So everybody in this church was very connected to this guy. He was still very young. He was a very important member of the church, so everybody was devastated by this, but none more so than his daughter, who was an only child. So she's very connected to her dad. And when I got there, three months had passed by, and I noticed that she was going out on the weekends, and she was partying hard. She was drinking really heavily. She was doing a lot of drugs. And I understand why she was doing this. You know, she was trying to numb out all that pain. But the one thing that really struck me is that she actually began smoking cigarettes herself. And I would have thought that the one thing she would avoid, like the one thing you would avoid after watching your father suffer like that, and he suffered pretty badly, uh, is that you would avoid smoking. But she didn't. She embraced the one thing that was the source of all of her pain, almost as if she secretly desired to suffer the same fate. I thought about that story a lot over the years because to me, it illustrates something that's really frustrating about human beings, which is that children are designed to copy everything that their parents do. So we talked last week about how when we're born, we're these blank slates, right? I mean, you remember how we talked about that, like we're these blank slates when it comes to our culture and our society, where we're kind of born into. And we have to learn these things from our environment, right? Like, we have to learn how to interact with our environment. And one of the ways that we learn how to act is just by watching our caretaker. This gets imprinted upon us how we grow up. I mean, think about it. When you think about a child, right, for the first three years of their life, they are just sitting there watching everything that you do. 
And although as adults we tend to kind of, you know, go about our business and we're not thinking they're paying super close attention to us, if you sat there and watched somebody for three years straight, right, you would learn a lot about them, wouldn't you? And so after three years, a child, they become super attuned to your states of anxiety and stress. They know when you're happy or when you're sad. They can sense when things are going well and when things are falling apart. And even more importantly, your children internalize all these things. They've been watching you so closely for so long that it kind of becomes a part of them. And so through osmosis, you've kind of passed on these ways of being to your kids. And this is true for both positive and negative things in our lives. And I just want you to think about a couple examples in this way. Why is it that the children of alcoholics will often become alcoholics themselves? Why is it the children who were born into poverty often remain in poverty? Why is it that smart, successful parents often produce smart, successful children? The answer, although it may sound very simplistic, is that the children are simply copying what they see in front of them. So what I would like to suggest to you this morning is that the reason why this young woman in my youth group, why she started smoking after her father's death, is because I believe there was something deep down inside of her that she observed during her childhood that connected smoking with her father. And when her father was gone, she sought out that connection again by beginning to smoke herself. Now, does that make logical sense? (laughs) Well, I mean, would anybody ever sit there and say, I'm going to start smoking to feel connected to my dad, right? Like, I don't know if people are going to do that, right? Consciously, you're not going to do that. But subconsciously, right, underneath the surface, it makes sense if you understand that this connection was made at a very young age. And she's not really thinking through why she feels that connection, but it's there. And this idea that I use to this illustration is the same idea that we find in Judaism. So in Judaism, there is this belief that the sins of the parents are passed down to the children. And the Jews, they believe this because they were trying to answer the question of how certain bad fortune would befall one family and not another. So for instance, if all of a sudden a member of your family dies unexpectedly, or if a member of your family has a child that's born with a genetic defect, the reason why that happens, in their mind, is because of some sin that you or your family committed against God. And so the reason why you have this bad fortune is because God is punishing you for that sin. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Okay. Now, also, they believed that these sins, they became part of the fabric of who you are. They were passed from one generation to the next. Now, that's really important for the story that we read this morning from the Gospel of John. And so in this story, remember, they come across a man who is born blind from birth. And the disciples, they ask Jesus a question. And the question is, Rabbi, who sinned to make this man blind? The man or his parents? And Jesus responds in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect a first century rabbi to respond. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, I remember the first time I read that, 
it actually really took me aback. Because Jesus is essentially dismissing all the common wisdom of his day. He's saying that your sins don't influence how a child is born. This man was not born blind because of anything he did or anything that his parents did. What Jesus says, he gives a completely different perspective on this. He says that this man was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Now, I find that to be a very curious answer that he gives. Because it seems to me that there's a double meaning behind it. So, on the one hand, there's a surface meaning, right? And the surface meaning is the one I think we can all get. This man was born blind so that Jesus could come along one day and heal him and show God's works in the world. We all on board with that one? We get that, right? But then there's another level to it, a deeper level, which is that this man is a symbol. We are all like the blind man. We are all born with deficiencies and handicaps that have been handed down to us by our parents, and God wants to heal those wounds inside of us. So the purpose of this story is really twofold. The first purpose is that Jesus wants us to understand that God does not punish our children for our sins, right? He wants to make sure that we understand that. And I hope you understand that that's true. I really believe that. God is not going to punish your children for something that you did wrong. If we take nothing else away from this sermon, just know that, okay? <laughs> like, that's not going to happen to you. That doesn't, that's not the way God works. But then that leads to a second purpose, right? A second purpose in this, which is that there's another meaning behind it in the sense that Jesus is getting at something 2,000 years ago that we are only just beginning to understand today. And it's the fact that he doesn't dismiss this idea that sins are passed from one generation to the next. He still believes that to be true. But the difference is, you see, sins are not passed from one generation to the next because God is trying to punish you. But rather, the ways in which we are emotionally and psychologically damaged by our parents. And by the way, we all are, right? It's a spectrum. Sometimes it's a little and sometimes it's a lot, okay? It just depends on who you are, right? So the ways that you are psychologically and emotionally damaged by your parents are very often the same ways that you will psychologically and emotionally damage your own children, right? And so this is the power of the ripple effect, which is you have the actions of one person, the caretaker, that ripple out beyond that person and impact others, the child, as they are growing up. And so what we find is that the cycle of negative traits that get passed down from one generation to the next, right? You know, you have something that happens with the grandparents, and then it gets passed to the, to the, to the parents, and then to the grandchildren, right? Like, you see it. It's in every generation going forward, unless you can break the cycle, and to talk to you about how you can break this cycle, I want to tell you another story from my life. So to tell you this story, I need to take you back to the beginning. So I grew up in a little town called Fredericksburg, Virginia. Now, I come from a two-parent family, and my father was and still is a stockbroker. And his brokerage firm is located in Richmond, which is an hour south of Fredericksburg in this little town. So he'd get up every morning, put on his suit, and he'd drive off very early to get to Richmond so that he would be there as the markets were starting to open up in New York. And he'd go on with his day. And then he'd come home. He'd have to drive the hour back to Fredericksburg in the evening. 
And he would usually get home, you know, 6 o'clock at night. Now, as a little kid, you know you're going to bed at like 7, right? So by the time he was home, I'm getting ready for bed. So I didn't really see very much of my father. And the purpose of me telling you this is that I spent most of my time with my mom, which means that in the context of this sermon, I spent most of the time observing my mother. Now, my mother, I remember very vividly, was an avid reader. She was always reading books. And I came to realize later on she was mostly reading those murder mystery novels, you know, like A is for alibi, C is for corpse, you know, stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And I kid you not, she probably read more than 2,000 of these books during her lifetime. We have boxes full of these paperback books in our basement. And I told my mom at one point, I was like, Mom, you should write one of these things. You've read so many of them. You have to know the formula, like the back of your hand. Like you could probably write the best one ever. She never did. But all this to say, I learned from an early age that reading was a good thing, an important thing. But my mom was also very temperamental. And when she was reading, she didn't like to be bothered by anybody, particularly a little kid coming up to her and interrupting her. So she'd be good for like the first few times. And then eventually she would get kind of upset and she'd yell at me and she'd say, go away, go play, go spend, you know, stop bothering me. And so I would. And so as a child, I spent a lot of time playing by myself. Now, I'm an introvert. I don't mind playing by myself. But the message that was sent to me as a child over and over again was that my mom was not very available. And on another level, that I was kind of an irritation to her. So as I'm aging into my teenage years, so I remember I'm in fourth grade, I'm like, 11 years old. And interestingly, I have this vivid memory of making a decision that I'm not going to read anymore. Like, I'm done with it. I'm done with reading. Like, I, I literally remember thinking that to myself. And so anytime I was outside of school, I wouldn't read anything. The only time I would read stuff was when I was in school. And looking back on that, I've thought about that moment for a long time. And now, I think the reason why I made that decision at that point in time was because reading was so important to my mom, and that because she had planted this seed inside of me that I wasn't welcome around her, that books came to represent her rejection of me. So you can imagine that when you're not reading all that much, it doesn't exactly do wonders for your grades, right, in school. So as I'm in school and I'm getting older, the my performance begins to decline significantly because I'm just not really reading any books, and so I'm not really expanding besides what I'm encountering in school. And so my conversations with my mother would often devolve into screaming matches. Now, on top of all of this, what you have to appreciate is that my parents, God love them, were not the best communicators, right? Like, they mostly argued with each other. And so my concept of a functional marriage was one where the angriest, loudest person always wins. So by the time I was 14 years old, I was angry all the time. I'd become a spitting image of my parents because they were angry and so was I. Now, I was very fortunate in the sense that my anger was generally under control because of sports. I spent almost all of my time, free time, swimming. And I channeled all of my anger into those practices. And that anger served me well. I won a state championship. 
I got a scholarship to a Division I school. So, you know, it helped me in the long run to get me where I needed to go. But after four years of college, I leave, and I don't have four hours of swim practice every day to alleviate the tension like I used to, right? I'm in the real world now. I've met Courtney. We were married. I'm at seminary, but I decide that I'm going to go out and I'm going to spend time with her out in California because we're married now. Rather than spend the time apart, I'm going to go out there with her. She had a full ride to law school. You're not going to give that up. And so we went to Pepperdine Law, which was, of course, a real tough choice for me to go out there. They really had to, they had to pull my arm to make me go out there. So we get out there, and I'm still in seminary, and I have to fulfill my requirements. So I think, you know what, I'll just do an internship. I'll start working at a church. So I get a job at a church, and they always begin you with the youth group. That's where you always start, right? Because they say if you can teach youth, you can teach anybody. Is that true, TC? That's what, that's what, maybe, maybe, I don't know. He's still teaching youth. He doesn't know yet. All right. <laughs> that's what they say. So I, I was put in charge of the middle school youth group. And if you've ever worked with middle schoolers, you know they can be like a handful, right? I mean, they have this preternatural ability to be able to spot your deepest insecurities. <laughs> and they have no qualms about exploiting those weaknesses whenever it's to their advantage. <laughs> you need to have thick skin to work with middle schoolers. And at that point in my life, my skin was super thin. Super thin. So you can imagine this was a really explosive combination, right? So I'm super sensitive. They're super disrespectful. And my go-to tactic was anger. Because I've been taught by my family growing up that when somebody's disrespectful, you treat them with anger. And so every time I encountered disrespect from a youth, I would yell, scream, and intimidate them. Now this all came to a head when... I was playing foosball one day, and you all might remember this story if you were here a long time ago. I told this story. I was playing foosball with my boss. Now, I'm pretty good at foosball. I'm very competitive when it comes to foosball. And my boss was horrible at it, but he'd been playing me for months, and he'd gotten a lot better. And he was getting close to beating me, and of course, my ego and pride are on the line. And the kids, they come in before youth groups, right before youth group, the kids come in, and they see that we're playing. And, of course, they do what middle schoolers do, right? They start taunting me, telling me I'm going to lose. They start blowing in my ear, you know, things like that. And when I inevitably do lose, I become irate, and I flip the table over. Now, if you've seen foosball tables, they're different sizes. This one was huge. It was made of solid wood. And so there were kids standing right next to it, and they had to jump out of the way. If they hadn't, they actually would have gotten hurt when I flipped it over. That is when my boss came up to me and he said, Alex, I think you might have an anger problem. <laughs> Which made me really angry that he would say that to me. <laughs> and I said, no, I disagree. I don't, I don't think so. Like, these kids are super disrespectful. You know, my anger is a justified reaction to their behavior. Where I grew up, this is how adults deal with anger. And that is true. Okay? The narrative of my life taught me that people are angry. People yell. People scream. That's how you deal with stressful situations. Anger is the way that adults get children to comply with their rules. So I take my narrative, and I'm now in a meeting with my boss, 
the pastor, and a therapist. And they're sitting around the table. They're trying to tell me that I have an anger problem, and I won't have anything. I won't hear it. Until finally, the therapist looks at me and says, Alex, look, I know you think the way you were raised was normal. Like, that that's normal, but it wasn't. It was normal to you, but compared to the way the rest of the world operates, your anger is not normal. And so she said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, and I want you to take a look at this verse in the Bible. You read the Bible, right, Alex? I'm like, yeah, of course I do. Okay, go read this verse, and it's the verse that we read this morning about anger, where Jesus says, so I say to you that if you become angry with a brother or sister that you will be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. I'd read that verse dozens of times. Dozens of times. Never thought it applied to me. (laughs) Never once. Because you have to realize that I never thought I had an anger problem. I never thought that that in any way. Because compared to my mother and father, I was calm. But when I compared it to Jesus, right, and what he's saying, it's a different situation, isn't it? Because it's all about your bar. (laughs) Like, where's your bar? Well, his bar is you shouldn't get angry at all. And compared to him, I did have an anger problem. And this was the first time in my life that I ever took a step back and thought, well, maybe, maybe the way that I'm acting is not right. And maybe something about me needs to change. So if the question that we're trying to answer this morning is how do you break that cycle of negative behaviors, negative traits that get passed from one generation to the next? The answer is twofold. First of all, you have to be made aware of the fault, right? I didn't know I had an anger problem. Can't fix something you don't know about, right? And the second thing that you have to be able to do is you have to have an intentional desire to overcome that problem. There's a lot of people who know they have a fault. Not everybody wants to fix it right? And when you start delving into the Bible, in particular when you start delving into Jesus' teachings, what you will find is that you have this whole litany of things where you're not really living the way that you should. I mean, so I, when I looked at this thing in the Bible about anger, right, it was kind of surprising to me because I thought to myself, well, I've read this verse so many times and I never thought it applied to me. What else in here possibly could apply to me that I hadn't realized about? And I started going through and I started realizing, A lot of things, actually. And so this is why I believe that the core of the gospel is really designed to bring you to full consciousness of yourself. Like, the gospel, what it does, and I really want you to hear this, I think this is so important, it wakes you up to the person who you are now, and it helps you understand the person who you could become if you allow Jesus and God to change your heart. That's so incredibly important. And so my prayer for you today is that you might leave here and take a moment to step back and objectively ask yourself, where are the areas of my life where I need to change and be different? And if you're having trouble answering that question, like me, you couldn't see it, take some time, sit down, read through the gospel. And when you get to a point where you're reading Jesus' teachings and things don't add up, you're not quite in line with what Jesus is asking you to do, and trust me, there will be a couple of those things in there, I want you to remember that Christianity, it has the ability to disrupt all of these negative influences 
that have formed and shaped your life. All these things that have been passed down to you from one generation to the next, you can disrupt those things. I'm living proof of that. I'm living proof that if you see your life as a work in progress and you're willing to allow God to shape and reform your heart, that you can break the cycle. I'm living proof that the person who you were raised as, you don't have to be that person anymore. That you can change and be different and you can actually only pass the best parts of yourselves on to the next generation. I am living proof that the gospel can change your life for the better. And my prayer for you today is that you might embrace the gospel, that you might dig into it, and that it might change your life for the better as well. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.